The following sermon was preached in the Sunday gathering of First Baptist Church of Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. We pray it bears fruit in your life, and we hope that you share it with others who might also benefit. At the same time, if you're not already, we encourage you to join a faithful local church where you can sit under the preaching of God's word and observe the ordinances. Visit firstbaptistwr.com for more information. Our Father in heaven, now as we turn to your word, I pray you would give us grace to hear the voice of Christ. Let us behold the wondrous mystery of his deity, of his humanity, of his suffering and death, and of his exaltation. We pray in his name, amen. Last Lord's Day morning, we began chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Paul had been speaking of suffering and striving for the name of Christ, and as he was in prison, he said that he expected comfort and the fellowship and the affection and mercy of the church to be his balm, what comforted him in his circumstances. And he commands the church at Philippi to fulfill his joy in that fellowship that they have in their suffering together by being like-minded, that they would have the same love, the same mind, being in full accord and of one mind, that they would consider others' interests as well as their own, that they would be courteous and respectful, and that they would be humble. And now just as Paul is an example of this kind of mindset to the church already in his chains, and just as when someone makes a point, they often want to make a concrete illustration of that point to give the mind an image to attach to and make it easier to remember, so Paul here in our text proceeds to provide an illustration of the mind he expects of them, the mind he's explained to them just in last week's passage and this example and illustration is the best illustration there is, the person of their Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you. Now the word this there, and that mind Paul is referring to, is the mind he just described in the previous verses. That mind with the same love. The same aspirations, with humility, consideration for others' interests. So Paul wants that mind to be in them. In the you here, let this mind be in you, that you is plural, meaning all of you. All of you. So Paul wants each member of the church, all of you together, to have the same mind amongst yourselves in your relations with one another as Christ had. So, church, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The Lord you profess to follow and worship, have the same mind he had and showed in the way he lived in his time on this earth. And now, the rest of the passage, Paul goes on to explain in detail what he means in saying that Christ had this mind. Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, 
did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now, this passage is beautiful in its simplicity, but don't let the simplicity fool you. The truths Paul's declaring here are too deep for human words, and we can't fully comprehend what he's going to explain here. He says that Christ Jesus, that Jesus the disciples walked and talked with and ate with, the carpenter's son, the one who was born to Mary and Joseph, and lived in Nazareth, who as a carpenter would have calluses on his hands and dirt under his fingernails and got cuts and splinters. That Jesus of Nazareth, he says, possessed the very nature of God. Notice the word form in verse 6, which also appears in verse 7, and an intentional parallel there. Christ was in the form of God. And he took the form of a bondservant. Now this word form doesn't refer to mere outward appearance. Form refers to the essence of a thing. What makes something what it is. Having the marking characteristics of a certain entity. So the NIV translates this as Christ being in very nature God. Christ, in his being, possessed the very attributes without which God would not be God. So Paul is saying that Christ is and was and ever will be truly God. He's very God of very God. And so this is one text that we can point to as proof of the deity of Christ, that he's God in the flesh. And you might hear that and just take it for granted a lot of us have just heard that from diapers. We've heard that from our parents and grandparents before us. It's an orthodox Christian teaching. But this hasn't been always the case in the history of the professing church, not among all those who professed Christ. At one time, the church as an institution, in much of its hierarchy, in the bishops who existed at that time, they adopted a belief that contradicted the teaching of this text. So we should be leery of thinking that whatever confession the church at one time as an institution adopts is the gospel truth. Our confessions of faith must be subject to scripture and to the law of non-contradiction as we learned in the Reformation. So these confessions don't have authority in themselves, because the church is subject to error. We're all sinners. We don't always get everything right all the time. So we must be subje subject to other Christians in our thinking, and we must debate and discuss and deliberate about these things, and pay regard to what the church has come to as a conclusion in the past, because there's much wisdom there. And that's why we hold to these creeds that we're saying week by week. So, at one time, around A.D. 300, during Constantine's times, time, the church was divided between Arians and what would become known as the Nicene Trinitarians. The Arians, which were named after um, a man called Arius, he held that there was a time when the sun was not. 
or that he didn't exist from eternity. So what it implied and what they said explicitly was the son was not fully divine. He was not fully God. But he was granted a title of divinity upon his completion of the cross and resurrection. The Arians thought that granting Christ full divinity and the same essence as God the Father contradicted the Christian teaching that there's only one God. And they thought that God cannot suffer or change. So since Christ suffered on the cross, he cannot be fully God. They thought that it would compromise monotheism as well, the idea that God is one, there's only one God. But the other side of the controversy, the orthodox side, held that the church had worshipped Christ from the beginning, and if Christ is no more than the highest and best of all creatures, as the Arians taught, then the church should either end their worship of Christ or admit they're worshiping a creature, a mere created being. In other words, if they held to Arius's position, they would have to confess one way or another that they were idolaters, that they were worshiping an idol rather than God. So long story short, this controversy was so great that the emperor called a council at the town of Nicaea because it was causing such a disturbance. And the bishop Eusebius, an Arian, came and presented his position to the council, apparently thinking that they would receive it because his reasoning was sound and he was using scripture to defend his position. But he presented his case that the word, God the Son, was the highest of all creatures. And instead of them receiving it, the other bishops said, you lie, blasphemy, heresy. And the tradition holds that they ripped the manuscript of his speech from his hands, they tore it to shreds, and then they trampled on the pieces. So apparently, these Christian leaders got more fired up about theology than a lot of people we see today. We don't see that a lot. But there is no denying that this was an important doctrine and tensions were high. Legend has it that St. Nicholas, that jolly old St. Nicholas, at this same council, he smacked Arius in the face. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not recommending that, but it is hard to maintain that he didn't deserve it. Professing faith in Christ and then denying the deity of Christ is a terrible offense. It's talking out of both sides of your mouth, talking with a forked tongue. Christ is fully God in the full sense of the term. We don't worship a mere creature. We're not idolaters here. We worship God. And this is a truth the church must defend, as the early church did, or it's no church of God. And you should know the Nicene Creed, which might be familiar to a lot of you today. It's basically the creed that they adopted at this council here to defend the doctrine of Christ's deity. But also, after this council, these bishops who disagreed, they were slick in their politics, and they used their favor with the emperor to eventually get some of the Trinitarians, the Orthodox guys, exiled from Rome. And the champion of Nicene Orthodoxy was also exiled. 
So despite the council's confession here, Arianism became the dominant position in the Roman Empire for a while. And many bishops signed on to Arian confessions of faith when they were under pressure from the emperor. These were confessions that denied the very substance of Christianity. And bishops who were orthodox, who held to the historic Christian teaching, were forced out of their towns and their posts. But today, Athanasius, the man who spearheaded this effort to defend the doctrine, we honor him with a phrase in the church, a Latin phrase, Athanasius contramundum, which means Athanasius against the world. So the majority opinion amongst professing Christians is not always the right one. So it's worth it to stand up for what you believe, even if few others stand with you. And Athanasius is a saint who is an example to us in that regard. That's a credit to him and others who stood with him that Arianism is not mainstream today. Most people understand that Christians worship Christ as fully God. But and it's only taught in uh, cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses and a form of it in Mormonism. But the orthodox, correct, scriptural, historical, reasonable position is that Christ, God the Son, is and always has been, from before time began, fully God. And as Paul will tell us, moving forward here, he's also fully man, having taken on full humanity in the Incarnation. But to return to our text here, Christ being in the form of God, or being in very nature God, very God of very God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now there's much debate about this, what this word translated robbery actually means in the original Greek because it's used so little at that time and in the writings that we have. The basic meaning is grasping, seizing something with a fist, a closed fist. And it either means he didn't see equality with God as something he needed to grasp, or he didn't see it as something he needed to grasp and hold on to, or it means he didn't see equality with God as being, grasping things. That, that wasn't being divine there, or like God. I don't think there's a lot of payoff into going into the different arguments for the different positions, because each one is just a nuance on it. I do prefer the, the understanding the New King James comes to here. But the basic meaning in all of these translations and the different nuances is that Christ was fully God, God in very nature. He possessed all the fullness of God, all the attributes of deity, all the riches and glory, and he was equal with God in every respect. He had heaven and the fellowship of the Trinity, and he lacked Nothing. He had bliss and happiness and all the prestige that comes with sonship. That's the main message here. Christ exalted, content, satisfied in the Trinity. So imagine a king sitting on a throne, highly exalted, in all of his splendor with a crown and robes, lacking absolutely nothing. And yet... Despite that, Paul says that king, he made himself 
of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So Christ, not because of any lack he had or any need he had, before the beginning of the heavens and the earth, when there was no time, no matter, no space, he willingly condescended. It was an act of free grace, of his own free will and his mere pleasure. He came down from heaven, and he made himself of no reputation. Now here, some translations read that he emptied himself, and some read that and they say, well, Christ left aside his divinity when he came down from heaven. But that's not true. It's not what Paul's saying here. God cannot cease to be God. He can't put off his divinity. But what he's saying is that God now in time becomes something he was not before time. In the person of God the Son, the divine nature and the human nature come together in one in the incarnation. There's no mixture. There's no confusion. He's not some God-type, man-type substance, but it's God and man without confusion together. So Christ is fully God, fully man, having the essence of both natures inseparable into eternity, now and forever. So this image is not putting off divinity. It's of a king putting aside his robes, putting aside his glory, in a sense, his royal raiment, and putting on the tattered clothes and the towel of a servant as he comes in the likeness of men. Just as Christ existed before time in the form of God, the very nature of God, so now Christ is incarnate and he takes the form, the very nature, the essence of a servant or even a slave in coming in the likeness of men. In appearance to any other humans, he looked just like them. He had their common nature. And he did, in truth, have the very nature of men. It wasn't just an appearance. He was born of a woman. Really. He didn't just look like a man. He was man. But that human appearance veiled the deity and the glory of God the Son. As the old hymn says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. And now if that still sounds abstract, hard to wrap your mind around, be encouraged because nobody fully understands that or how it's possible. How the divine can exist inseparably with the human in that union until eternity and how it was possible in the first place. But think of it this way. There's a TV show called Undercover Boss. A lot of you have probably seen it. So on this show, the CEO of a company goes undercover and he disguises himself as a regular worker, a production worker in his own company. And he does this just to get an inside look at how things are going in his company, whether there's uh, any problems. He wants to get a worm's eye view of the thing. So he's the CEO, but he shows up disguised as an average worker. And these other workers train him in to do uh, the work of production. So nobody recognizes that he's the CEO. They don't know, and they just act naturally. And they do things they would never do if they knew the CEO was watching. 
But then at the end, he reveals himself, and they're shocked, they're confused, they're embarrassed at times. But if he sees them do a good job, then he rewards them somehow, and that's usually how it ends. That's an imperfect analogy, but it's the kind of image, the kind of thing that's going on here with Christ being incarnate and being veiled in flesh. It's like a king taking off his royal robes, going to a far-off country where no one recognizes him. He's still the king, but he just looks like a regular guy, and they treat him like a regular guy. But he's the king underneath it all. And that deity, the king, he takes the form, the very nature of a servant. So while the kings of the earth, they use their royal status to plunder and pillage other people, they try to extend their kingdom with vice and vanity, delusions of being the king of the world. The true king, who Paul calls the blessed and only sovereign, he comes as a servant. He washes the feet of fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, and even his own betrayer, the night of his betrayal. Judas. He heals the wounds of women and children. He welcomes children to be his friends, to enter into the kingdom. He becomes a physician to the sick and the dying. He adopts the orphan. He welcomes the stranger and lepers. He has all power and authority, but he comes not to steal and kill and destroy, but that men may have life and have it abundantly. Paul goes on, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So here's a continuation of this condescension of Christ. He's coming from the highest height and going to the lowest low. He becomes incarnate. He's born in a manger among animals. He descends to dwell among common people. And as if that's not enough, he humbles himself and becomes obedient to the point of death, that low death of being hung on beams of wood, a dishonorable death reserved for criminals. He's hung up there with thieves and robbers, the lowest of the low. And he's buried and he descends to Hades, as the Apostles' Creed says. He descends to the dwelling place of the dead. So he travels the highest height to the lowest low. That's the path that Paul is tracing here. But in verse 9, there is a turn. Paul starts this verse with the word therefore. So what is the therefore, therefore, is what you should be asking here. Paul says that since Christ endured all the suffering and all that shame, and he served men in all those ways as God's suffering servant, on that grounds, because of that, therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
So we have a turning point here where Christ goes from the lowest of the low to return again to the highest height because of his condescension to save sinful men and what he's accomplished on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. He's lifted him up and given him the name above every name. So the question here is, what is this name that God gives to Jesus? What is that name above every name? You might think it's the name Jesus, the name of the son of the carpenter. But logically, the name above every name is the name of God. No name is higher than God's name. But there's many so-called gods who take that title of God. And in the book of Exodus, God tells us his personal name. God's personal covenant name is Yahweh, which means I am who I am. That's God's name. So while Paul says it's at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, he also says that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, stick with me here. That word for Lord in the Greek is the translation of the Hebrew word Adonai, which also means Lord. And that word Adonai is the word that the Hebrews would pronounce in the Bible when they came to the word Yahweh. It was too holy to pronounce. They didn't want to pronounce it. So every time they came across it, they just substituted uh, the word for Lord. So here, in effect, Paul is saying that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. Christ is Lord, the great I Am. That's what he's saying here. The Lord has come in the flesh, the great I Am, and manifested himself as Jesus of Nazareth. And this man and this God is the one before whom Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Every knee will bow from the lowest depths to the highest height. Every tongue from every angel and principality and power, every demon, every hound of hell, the soul of every man, whether reprobate or elect, Cherubim, seraphim, archangel, witch, wizard, king, queen, governor, dictator, or Caesar. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, this God and this man, born of the Virgin Mary, is the great I am himself, the only God who created the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that fills them. Behold this wondrous mystery of Christ, God and man, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Man cannot fathom this mystery. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, became the lowest slave to ever walk the earth, so that you, a slave to sin, death, and the devil, might receive grace, an adoption as sons, to receive an inheritance fit 
only for a king. Christ, the world, and everything in it, all things are yours in Christ. He left the highest height to descend to the deepest, darkest pit of hell. And then he ascended and sat down at the right hand of God the Father in order to reclaim all things for himself. And he will sit there until all of his enemies are put under his feet so that he might fill all things. Paul says so in Ephesians 4.10. Now this, he ascended, Paul writes. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things, so that he could distribute, distribute grace and gifts among men, that he might call you to the work of ministry in the church, that you might no longer live for yourself, but for the one who died for you and was raised. Tremble at the awesome power and wisdom of God in Christ. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Christ the King was damned, accursed, nailed to a tree so that you could have life. So fear and tremble, believer, because the one who dwells in your hearts by faith, he's the one who made the world and everything in it. The one who knows you, who knows all of your sin and infirmities and weakness, your pain, your sickness. The one who knows all that and experienced that for himself. He's the one who's far above all, far beyond our comprehension and therefore able to help you in your weakness and in your suffering. Job says we comprehend merely the outskirts of his ways. He stirs up the sea with his power, Job says, and by his understanding he breaks up the storm. By his spirit he adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. And he opened up a way of salvation through his body of flesh by his death. When that soldier went and pierced Christ's side, and John tells us that blood and water came pouring out. It's not just a random detail. A fountain was opened up that day, the prophets tell us. For the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, for sin and uncleanness, blood and water came pouring out. Blood to save from wrath. Death died in your place. And water for washing to cleanse us from all our sins, to make us pure, to help us to live like Christ. Because you and all of us in your life, unlike Christ, you have wanted to rob God of his glory. You failed to make yourself of no reputation. You've grasped for power. 
You've wielded it unjustly. You've been vain and made too much of yourself. You wanted others to bow down at times and lick the dust at your feet. You didn't want to serve them. You didn't want to change those diapers all the time. You didn't always want to take care of that sick wife or husband or that irritable spouse. You didn't want to listen to the yelling and hooting and hollering of the kids or their constant questions. You failed to take the form of a servant and to give other men their due. You failed to be obedient to God, your maker, your sustainer. You didn't resist temptation to the point of shedding your own blood. You gave in. Your courage and your resolve failed. You lost your temper. You didn't have patience. Like Peter who told Christ, I will give my life for you. Instead, you've denied Christ far more than three times, whether by your lips or by your actions at some time in your life. And for that, you, me, all of us, we don't deserve to be highly exalted. What we deserve is to be consigned to the lowest rung of hell. Because we haven't loved God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. You haven't met that perfect standard of the law. You deserve, all men deserve, on your own merits, to have your knees broken by the one who rules the nations with a rod of iron. And you deserve to have that confession that Christ is Lord cudgeled out of you with blows to your back and neck because by your own will, your tongue refused to make that confession. The scripture says, we all like sheep have gone astray. But the Lord laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's not a work of your own. It's a gift of grace. In spite of all your sin. In spite of all you've done wrong. In spite of the fact that you will never obey God's law perfectly. Look to Christ who condescended who took on flesh to ransom us. And that's the great exchange here. Christ gets our sin. We get his righteousness in full, accounted to us freely by the grace of faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Christ descended to hell. He proclaimed victory and he purchased justification and life for you and whosoever will. All may come. Believe in Christ and you shall be saved. And believer, look, if Christ went to hell and back for you, if it cost him that much, there's no way you can ever repay him.
There's no way. And don't think you can. Don't even try. But receive life as a gracious gift, an inheritance that cannot perish, kept in heaven for you. And live life, a life of gratitude to him. Not for life, not for justification, not to earn anything, but out of thankfulness, because Christ has done it. It's finished, is what he said from the cross. So follow his example. Consider yourself of no reputation. Serve your fellow men. Humble yourselves, especially serve fellow believers. Seek to live in harmony with one another. Humble yourself. Become obedient to God. Resist temptation, even to the point of shedding your own blood when it comes to that. Keep the good confession. By grace, gladly confess. Gladly confess with all your heart and soul by the Spirit's power that Jesus Christ is Lord. And by grace, gladly bow the knee because of all of his benefits to you, which are sure. And hope for the day that God will honor you, each and every one of you who believe. He will honor you with a name better than sons, along with Christ at his right hand, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again this morning for all that Christ is and all that he is for us. We thank you that he left heaven above just by his mere pleasure because of all that he is. And he bought us, believers, by his blood. Help us to live lives worthy of this gospel of grace. We pray in his name. Amen.